It gives me great pleasure to introduce my friend Paul Weirich to my friends, the students of Christendom College. As some of you may know, I have involvements beyond Front Royal, but they're somewhat attenuated now, but three children ago, I was working full-time with our speaker tonight in intense political work, and it always delights me when I can connect the disparate parts of my life. And uh, tonight, you, the students of this college, which is now a large part of my life, have the opportunity to meet my mentor from the political part of my life. And some of you may be saying, why do I need to be here to listen to this? I should be home working on some papers that are due. A handful of you are beginning to sense that perhaps you are called to politics as your life work. Now, politics, of course, is not just elections or legislation. It is activity in relation to power. And when one engages in that, one needs to be very close to God. So I say called very deliberately, because anybody contemplating politics as a career should be approaching it as a vocation. To those of you who are considering this work, you need to know Paul Weirich because he is a trailblazer for you. He's a Catholic practitioner of politics whom you should know that you might learn from him and be inspired by his example. Most of you, of course, do not feel called to politics, but you need to know Paul Weirich as well. Why? So that you can have a glimpse of, your, of how you should live your life as a citizen. None of us asked God to create us and plant us in a democracy at the decaying end of a great civilization. But to do so was his sovereign will, and so we must make the best of it. Making the best of it means carrying out our share of the burdens of citizenship. Every one of you should know, as you pursue your chosen vocation in whatever honorable course that may be, that you are able to do that because the Paul Weyricks of the world have ventured into the world of power politics and in that arena are preserving today your right to go to a non-government college and preserving tomorrow your right to homeschool your children, and preserving today and tomorrow the right of our church to preach the truth when it runs contrary to popular fads. This is the debt that every one of us owes to the practitioners of Christian politics. And the students of Christendom College, which is attempting to restore the very foundations of Christian civilization, should of all people understand this debt. Paul was born in Racine, Wisconsin in 1942 and was earning a living before he was the age of 20 as a disc jockey, then as a radio newsman, switching into newspaper and television news in Wisconsin and Colorado before coming to Washington as press secretary to the late Senator Gordon Allett of Colorado. In 1973, he founded the Heritage Foundation. Then in 1974, the first conservative political action committee it was called the Committee for the Survival of a Free Congress, perhaps the worst name in political history, and now known as Free Congress PAC. Now, of course, there are hundreds of PACs, but this was the first one. Permit me just a brief digression here to tell you something that should make clear what a trailblazer of modern politics this man is, and I'm sure he won't get into it in his remarks. When Paul founded the Political Action Committee, the Republican establishment was by no means pro-life. The Roe v. Wade decision was still new. 
the issue had not yet been argued out. Politicians hadn't paid any attention to it. At the time, Paul had an electoral technology that the Republican Party really wanted. Uh, they needed it to elect their candidates. Now, in order to make friends, Paul could have endorsed those Republican candidates and given them his election technology and helped elect them. But he did not. From the very beginning, he would not endorse or assist a candidate who would not promise to protect unborn life. And very gradually, gradually, as the pro-life candidates became the winning candidates, the climate inside the Republican Party leadership councils began to change. Now, this struggle, of course, is not over, and it will probably have to be fought again with every political generation that comes along. But without Paul Weyrich's principled and radical stand in 1974, there would not even be a struggle today. To continue briefly with his accomplishments, in 1976, he founded the Free Congress Foundation, where some of you have had the pleasure of interning. In 1979, he helped a man named Jerry Falwell to found something called the Moral Majority. In 1988, he helped a fellow Virginian named Pat Robertson to run for president. By 1992, however, he was an ordained deacon in the Melkite Greek Catholic Church, and by order of his bishop, could not endorse candidates anymore. A great relief, no doubt. In 1988, he began traveling behind the Iron Curtain to help organize pro-democracy forces. And when that curtain ripped apart, he continued to train the leaders of the pro-democracy elements in the CIS and Eastern Europe. In 1994, he returned to his first love and founded NET, a 24-hour-a-day, 365-day-a-year conservative news talk television network, of which he is CEO, Chief Executive Officer today. Paul is married to his high school sweetheart, Joyce, and they have five children, one of whom, Diana, is an alumna of Christendom College. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in warmly welcoming Deacon Paul Wyrick. appreciate uh, very much that introduction. Connie, it's always dangerous to have an ex-employee introduce you, you know, because you're not sure what, uh, what's going to be said. And it's also dangerous to have your daughter in the audience because uh, she can tell the truth later after you've said what you're going to say. But it is better than uh, an introduction that I received when I was uh, going to address the Mississippi State Senate. And the senator who had uh, passed a resolution of uh, commendation gave a long litany of, of things uh, that I had done and then said, Mr. Wyrick is truly a self-made man. And I sort of straightened up. And he paused and he said, thus relieving God of the awesome responsibility. <clears throat> I think that it's important to understand 
where we are in the life of this country. As Connie noted, uh, I've been very blessed in living a very interesting life. I mean, the improbability of somebody who was the son of a German immigrant with an eighth grade education who shoveled coal for a living and who was barely able to, to make it. I mean, uh, I remember kneeling down in our living room with my mother praying that we wouldn't have any more cold days because we couldn't afford the coal for the furnace. The improbability of uh, somebody from a backwater town in Wisconsin having the opportunity, God-given opportunity, to participate in the political process worldwide is, I think, uh, rather extraordinary. It's something which, uh, uh, as I look back, particularly on the 30 years that uh, I've now been in Washington, uh, I can scarcely believe because uh, it doesn't make any particular sense if you look at it on paper. I mean, I had none of the qualifications. I'm a college dropout. I had uh, none of the qualifications that it takes to do the things that I've been able to do. And about the only thing that you can say about it is that I approached all of this with no personal agenda, but rather telling our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that I was here to serve him, and whatever he wanted me to do, I was open to do it. And that has led me to the myriad of activities, all of which have given an opportunity to witness to the faith. Whether I was uh, in broadcasting, I did all kinds of, of features uh, that uh, incorporated Catholic truth in them. Uh, in politics, you have the opportunity to witness for your faith, not necessarily in some sort of uh, evangelical style where you're trying to convert people, but in translating what you believe in to the, the practical arena, right down to the time when I worked in the Senate one time and we were opposing a particular project that uh, Westinghouse and some of the big boys were trying to put across. And uh, I had convinced my senator that this was a bad project for the taxpayer. And he was the only one that spoke out against it. But because he was well regarded, he had quite an impact in doing that. So much so that the big boys from Pittsburgh came to see me and literally offered a bribe to get me to change my position. 
I guess that was one of the fundamental forks in, in the road. You know, we all have them as individuals. And I've seen people who have come to Washington filled with Christian ideals, and they reach a point like that. And then, probably because they don't pray regularly, they go down the wrong fork, and you see the result of all of that. And so, when I think of these years, I think of uh, all of the opportunities to witness for truth. We have one advantage over our enemies, and that advantage is that a little bit of truth goes a very long way. You can have just 10% of the ability to convey that truth to people out there and you can get as much in terms of results as those who have all of the great facilities and all of the capabilities and all of the resources to broadcast lies. They have a much harder job than we have because what we talk about is based in reality and what they talk about has to be manufactured. And so it is much more difficult for them to do what they do than it is for us to do what we do. I recall being in Habarovsk, which is in the Russian uh, Far East, and I was giving, I was addressing a uh, dinner filled with various officials. And uh, a very large man stood up in the back of the hall and he said, uh, I am the general in charge of the military district of Habarovsk and uh, I bring you greetings and I welcome you here and I am very glad that you are here and I have to tell you that I never expected to be saying this because for many years I got up every day and I said, how can I defeat those people? And my whole life was devoted to defeating the West. And so for me to stand here and welcome you as you come to teach us about how we should operate politically is quite something. Well, I was very struck by what he said, and I tried to give a nice reply. But afterwards, he came up to me, and he said, I don't think you understand what, what I was saying. He said, I was a loyal and devoted member of the Communist Party. I believed all that they taught. How was I to know, he said, that they were lying to us? We had no access to information. We didn't know. And he said, now my world has collapsed. And then he took his enormous hands, was very impressed with the enormity of his hands, and he grabbed a hold of me 
And he said, I don't know where to go from here. Please help me. Now here is this powerful Russian general, somebody who had been part of the whole system. And it would be the equivalent if we found out somehow that Christ didn't rise from the dead. And therefore, everything that we have believed in and everything that we based our life on, life on uh, you know, was torn to shreds. Well, of course, we don't have to worry about that. But he did have to worry about it because he had believed his, the, the lies of the Communist Party and his whole system of beliefs was now completely shattered. And so there, in this faraway place in Siberia, I was witnessing the truth of the Catholic faith to this general. And he got tears in his eyes. And he said, this is the first time I have ever heard any of this. What great opportunities we have when we open ourselves to doing what the Lord wants. When I first started to go to the Soviet Union, I had a lot of problems because even many of my friends said that uh, we had sold out, that the fact that we were going over there was uh, cooperating with the enemy. But I saw something very different when I went over there. I saw a lot of young people who were eager to hear the truth, who were eager to hear things that they had never heard. I saw a lot of people with a lot of courage who were willing to stand up against the system. And yes, the KGB was in every meeting, and we were tailed, and we were harassed. But so what? We had the opportunity to speak the truth, and as you can see, the truth is more powerful than all of their lies. In fact, uh, there's a lot of debate about the role that Gorbachev played in all of this, and some people, like Time Magazine, make him into a great hero, and other people, the kind of people that uh, I was working with, uh, distrusted and disliked him. My view is that for whatever reason, he also cooperated with God, probably without knowing either God or the idea of cooperation. But he let in the voices from outside of the rest of the world for the first time, and that is what did in the Soviet Empire. There's a lot of talk about SDI and Reagan's foreign policy, and of course that was helpful. But I will tell you that the lies which they had constructed could not endure when people were exposed to the truth. And the only way that they could maintain that society was to keep it a prison, combination prison and insane asylum, where they could keep out all outside information. And so whatever one thinks of Gorbachev, and I am not one of his fans, one at least has to give him the credit for that. Also, 
the head of the KGB, Khrushchev, came to Gorbachev after we had started our work. And we had a unique approach to it because we took Russians and Ukrainians and, and others to the United States and trained them for a couple of months and then sent them back to work among their own people. Khrushchev, the head of the KGB, went to Gorbachev and told him of what we were doing and told him that we had started a subversive network, one which could threaten the very existence of the Soviet Union, and he asked Gorbachev to crack down on what we were doing. And this is Khrushchev's account now. Uh, he said Gorbachev remained silent when he said this, and it so angered him that he left the meeting and organized the coup, which threw out Gorbachev and brought in Yeltsin and uh, all that, that has followed. So in God's divine plan, uh, things take very strange turns. I mention this because in the traditional Catholic communities that I am familiar with and that I uh, address frequently, I oftentimes hear a nostalgia for a different era. And this isn't to say that it's inappropriate to wish that we would return to the principles that work and to the devotion that we once had as a, a nation uh, to the uh, laws of God. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is I hear Catholics say to me, particularly those who are of the traditional bent, Catholics say to me, oh, if only I lived in the 18th century, or if only I lived in the Middle Ages. In fact, we have an organization that actually devotes itself to trying to return to the Middle Ages. And they make a big point about this. I can't really function in this society because this society is corrupt and it's impossible for somebody of my beliefs to function here. And so they excuse themselves for their inactivity because they are suggesting that God created them for the wrong time. That, my friends, is blasphemy because it is saying that God didn't know what he was doing putting you where you are. In fact, the Orthodox theologian Father Thomas Hopko suggests that this may be the sin against the Holy Spirit that is unforgivable that is talked about in the scriptures. I don't know whether that's true or not, but I know that we were created for this time, put here in this country, not in some other country, not in Europe, but here, and we were created deliberately by God to serve him now, which means that if you are in this country, you have an obligation of citizenship 
which necessitates that you take an interest in what is going on in your country. It doesn't mean that you have to devote your life to this sort of thing, as I have done, because many people have many different callings. And I'm not here to say that, you know, if you really want to do what's right, you have to be in government or you have to get into politics. But I am here to suggest to you that when people say, well, I don't want anything to do with that because that's dirty. Politics is dirty. Of course it is when we absent ourselves from it. How do you think it gets that way? It gets that way when good people of good moral persuasion say, I want nothing to do with this. And yet, if you look in all of Christian history, you find that there were people, very important people, who involved themselves in the politics of their day. I mean, one of our great heroes in the Eastern Church is John Chrysostom. And he got exiled a couple of times for speaking out about the political regime of the time. In fact, the Empress uh, recanted once on one of his uh, trips into exile because she had a miscarriage and she interpreted that as a sign from God that she had made a mistake, so she brought him back. And of course, under most circumstances, somebody who had had that experience would then be quiet, be silenced, and instead he increased his attack on her. And then she really sent him out of town. But in any case, he had the, the courage to speak on his convictions. And if you look at the, the, the writings of uh, St. Basil the Great, for example, another great Eastern saint, you ought to acquaint yourself with some of these if you're not familiar with them because they are part of your Catholic tradition. And uh, Basil the Great made the statement that since Christ is truth, that no matter what discipline you involve yourself in, that you can represent Christ if you speak the truth. And if you look at what Basil did, for example, he was sort of known as the Mayor Daly of uh, his time because his whole effort was at putting people in the right government positions so that they would serve the church while uh, doing their government work. And if you look at his letters, I mean, it's, it, he's consumed with this. Did we get so-and-so into this position? And I have a candidate for this job over here, and, and so on and so on. I mean, this is a bishop. So the notion that politics is dirty, or that government work is automatically corrupting, is utter nonsense. Now, there are professions, of course, where that is true. I mean, if you want to become a drug dealer, that is per se an evil profession, and no good can ever come from it. If you want to run a you know, house of prostitution or something like that, all right. Those are evil professions. Those are dirty professions. Those are professions where if you get into it, you will lose your soul. No doubt about it. But politics and government are neutral. They depend upon the character 
and the will and, if you will, the worldview of the people who participate. This is why I hope that as you contemplate what you are going to do with the splendid education that uh, Christendom is giving you, I'm seldom envious of anyone, but I must say I'm envious of you having this educational opportunity because uh, I did not, and I wish I had. But as you contemplate what you're going to do with the truth here that is being taught to you in a splendid way, you need to calculate in what part of your life is going to be devoted to your duties as a citizen, precisely because God placed you here in this time and for the purpose of witnessing to his truth in whatever aspect of life that you choose. We are confronting right now in America one of the most dangerous phenomenon that has ever come across the landscape in this great nation. In this bloody century, after confronting tyranny, first with the Nazis and then with the communists, we are now succumbing to a tyranny which is far worse, if you can believe that, than this tyranny. And that is the tyranny of political correctness. Because the tyranny of political correctness is nothing but cultural Marxism. It is the classic Marxism transferred from economics to the culture. It, of course, rejects the notion that there is a God, and it places certain self-appointed people in the position of substitute gods who will determine what is and is not appropriate. As we know, we are to be judged based on what we do individually. I assure you that when you die and you face the dread judgment seat of Christ, that he is not going to ask you what your position was on environmental issues. He is going to ask you what you did with what he gave you stewardship over while you were here. And he is not going to ask what your position was on women's issues. He is going to ask what you did with the women who he sent your way while you were on this earth. But we have now a new construction of morality which is so infecting the body politic that it is even infecting parts of the church who now are afraid to confront the truth in some instances because they don't want to be, quote, offensive, unquote. And this morality is the morality of artificially constructed groups. So we take women. 
Okay? What kind of women are we talking about? Are we talking about Connie Marshner or are we talking about Bella Abzug? Because while they have perhaps something in common biologically, although I'm not sure of that, but nevertheless, uh, <clears throat> that is all they have in common. What they believe in is fundamentally different. How can we talk about women as a category and have people like this in the same category? Well, we can talk about it if we say that women, real women, only subscribe to a particular point of view. So you have now spokesmen for the radical feminists who, notice I didn't say spokespeople because that's politically correct and it's grammatically incorrect and I refuse to use the term, but we have these spokesmen for the radical feminists who say that if you take the position that there should be no abortion, no killing of the unborn, that you cannot be a real woman because only a real woman would want to control her own body. So they are determining what is a woman and what is not. You had a splendid example of this this past week. I don't know whether you read the Washington papers or not. Always pray before you do, but uh, <laughs> there we had a, a congressman from Connecticut by the name of Franks, Gary Franks. He's a nice, innocuous uh, person, uh, moderate Republican, so-called pro-choice, although he did vote right on the partial birth abortion question. Uh, but, you know, really not uh, somebody to, to write home about. But nevertheless, uh, the leader of the Black Caucus, Congressman Clay of Missouri, even though Franks was defeated in this last election, rather unexpectedly, wrote a six-page paper condemning Franks, particularly irritated Clay because when Franks got elected to the Congress, he insisted on joining the Black Caucus, and uh, even though he was black, they didn't want him because he didn't subscribe to all of their positions. And what particularly galled Clay was that he pushed for uh, the abolition of affirmative action programs on the grounds that uh, only equality of opportunity and not equality of outcome was the real uh, proper way of, of looking at things. But anyway, Clay went on at great length uh, condemning him in the most virulent of terminology and then came the important phrase. Franks, he says, was really white. Yes, now here is a black congressman <laughs> and he's really white, but you see the point that these self-appointed substitute gods say we will determine who is black. And in their minds, black and liberal are the same thing. So if you dissent in any way from that point of view, you cannot be black. And I could go on and on and on through all of the different categories. This is 
a very dangerous ideology, and it is infecting the society at such a rapid rate, and more and more people are refusing to speak out on these issues because they are afraid to offend. They're afraid to speak the truth. We now have serious discussion among the Catholic bishops for some sort of gender-neuter gospel and liturgy and so on where we pray to you know, our parents in heaven and so on. Why? Because in the ideology of these people, the notion of fatherhood, which is central to the Judeo-Christian understanding of who we are, is absolutely forbidden. And so they have to change the language. They have to change the understanding of things. Language is very important. They have to change these things in order that they may proceed with their plans to deconstruct all institutions, including the church in America, because as long as these so-called archaic ideas like fatherhood persist, it runs counter to that which they are preaching. So rather than try to defend their position, because they can't, it's indefensible, they want to change the language so that we all have to conform to them. Who gives them this authority? Well, they give themselves this, this authority because they think of themselves as the Illuminati of our time. They are the people who are specially gifted, of course not by God because they don't acknowledge God, but somehow they have managed to acquire this insight and knowledge that makes them superior to all the rest of you and gives them the authority to tell you what you should do. My friends, this tyranny, which is now rampant in this country, is more dangerous than the economic model of Marxism and the Nazism which has inflicted this century and every one of you is going to have to stand up and fight for the truth before this is over. You may not choose to be in politics, but the other side is choosing to politicize every aspect of your life. And therefore, you don't have a choice in the matter. You are going to have to stand up and you are going to have to be counted. And this is why I want you to give due consideration to all of this. It's not an accident that you are here. It's God's providence that you are here. It's not an accident that you are learning the Catholic truth in its unvarnished form. Because that truth is what is needed to confront the political correct tyrannical movement of our time. And so when you hear this talk about, oh, I can't be involved in politics because I'm going to lose my soul, you may lose your soul if you are not involved in this great confrontation. 
At the end of Matthew's gospel is the parable of the talents. And of course we know from the church fathers that Christ was not talking about the sum of money, even though that is the illustration. Christ was talking about what is given to each of us to be stewards of on this earth. And for some it may be wealth, for others it may be a particular ability, for others it may be something else. But in any case, you remember the parable because the man who received five talents increased it to ten and he was praised. The man who received two talents increased it to four and he was praised. But the man who received one talent and who buried it was condemned. All of us has talent of one kind or another. All of us will be called at one point or another to make use of that talent in this great confrontation that is taking place in this country from which no one can escape. And the question for all of us is, will the Lord say at the end of our lives, well done, good and faithful servant. Thank you. Bishop Sheen once, uh, once said that uh, if you applaud at the beginning of the speech, it represents hope. If you applaud in the middle of the uh, faith, I mean, if you applaud in the middle of the speech, it represents hope. And when you applaud at the end, it represents charity. Uh, so I appreciate very much your charitable attitude. I'm told that I can uh, take some of your uh, questions. I have opinions whether or not I know anything about the subject, so I'll be happy to address anything that you would like. Yes, sir. Well, uh, here is a case where many people saw the opportunity to make points with the reigning political establishment by turning on somebody who was in fact, for a good measure of what he was doing, speaking the truth. And that's why 
it isn't sufficient to have the knowledge that many of these people have. It isn't sufficient to be able to speak well. But it is important to always pray before one makes any such pronouncements. And I dare say that it is likely that what you saw on the part of many of these people who uh, made points with the liberal establishment by attacking Pap did not pray before they made those pronouncements. Now, I don't happen to agree with Pat on everything, and I don't think that uh, it's necessary to, to agree with him on everything. You know, he's not infallible. But uh, the fact is that what was done by some of the leading Catholics like Bill Bennett, for example, was reprehensible. Uh, it can't be justified. And it was done not because they had a genuine fear of Pat Buchanan winning the presidency or because they thought that, uh, uh, you know, he was so wrong in some of his ideas that they would be dangerous for the country. It was done very simply because here was the golden opportunity to show the national media and other people that, hey, like Peter in the courtyard, I'm not one of them. Don't confuse me. I may have hung around with those people and I may have been part of that troop, but I'm really not one of them. And that's what it was about. And it was very disappointing. Yes. Well, there may be. I mean, I'm not uh, enough of a student of the actual operations of a lot of these people that I can affirm or deny whether or not there are actual financial connections. But uh, that isn't always necessary. I mean, a lot of the conspiratorial theorists look for answers where, you know, they, they, they always want to find some secret room someplace where all the orders are being given for this stuff. And that isn't how it really operates by and large. It operates in the sense of a mindset. People get convinced of a certain worldview and they stick with that worldview even though it may be totally in error. And the, the cultural Marxists in this country are direct descendants, for example, of the Frankfurt School, which uh, was um, uh, operating after uh, many of the uh, uh, intellectuals fled Europe, uh, Jewish intellectuals fled Europe, and uh, uh, they came up with the kind of deconstructionist ideas that are now rampant. But whether or not that school influenced those people, I have no idea. But uh, the point is that they're all looking at the same thing. The economic model of Marxism has failed. And even though, you know, you have examples of it here and there, 
it has failed. I mean, there is, you know, so much evidence of this that uh, it uh, is, is absolutely insurmountable. So they have transferred their advocacy of that, although underneath, of course, they're still pushing socialism, but they have transferred this uh, to the culture because they think ultimately if they control the culture, they'll be able to control the economics. And they're right, of course. And they've made far more progress in controlling the culture than they have in ever advancing their economic theories. And of course, both are based on unreality. Both are based on a construction of the society which is an absolute lie. And in that sense, this is why I'm very heartened to uh, see this student body, and Dr. O'Donnell tells me that uh, you have very high SAT scores, and uh, uh, he th thinks that uh, you're quite bright, the brightest class. I don't know what that says about Diana, but it's uh, <laughs> brightest class to ever, ever come along. Uh, I don't know what it says about me either because I took a course from Bill Marshall in 1978. I was one of the original Christendom junkies or something. I went down to, <clears throat> to a godforsaken place called Triangle, Virginia and uh, took, took this class on uh, apologetics. But anyway, um, I'm very heartened to hear about this because your intellectual power and your knowledge is going to be greatly needed to confront these uh, important issues. Yes, sir. Well, I uh, think that General Lebed is actually uh, a breath of fresh air. Now, mind you, he doesn't know a lot. He's just made his first trip to the United States. He was literally someone who never got outside of, of Russia. And a lot of what he has said has been based on a very primitive understanding of, of the world. But he's also very bright. And the more he sees, the more he uh, understands. But Lebed is a... Um, a genuine article, uh, he is not corrupt, and he uh, really has uh, many Christian ideas. Uh, how much he has personally accepted the Christian faith, I don't know, but uh, he has um, probably more of a Christian worldview than any, anybody else, uh, and, and so you should pray for him. Uh, because if he accepts the whole uh, vision, uh, he can really be a, a very powerful figure for good. I um, am uh, one who uh, uh, is not without hope uh, for Russia. The problems there are very, very difficult. And uh, of course, there's an entrenched uh, group of people who oppose 
any kind of reform and, and so on. And some of the reforms, by the way, are no good either. I mean, unbridled capitalism uh, is, is not good either for the soul uh, because it uh, tends to, to uh, tempt people to uh, corruption that uh, otherwise uh, wouldn't be the case. But um, uh, I am very struck by the story of Saint Seraphim of Seraph. I don't know whether you're familiar with him, but uh, Seraphim uh, lived in the last century, and he, he was a monk and he was a mystic, and people came from all over Russia just to have a, a word with him. And uh, he foresaw and accurately predicted that the uh, communists would take over, and this is long before there was any thought of any uh, communists or anything of the sort in Russia, but he predicted this, he wrote it. And um, he also said that, uh, well, let, let me back up. When the communists did take over, uh, they didn't like all these people rushing to uh, Serov in, in central Russia, uh, and they uh, crushed the monastery. They uh, destroyed the uh, whole apparatus, and they killed the monks. And the remains of St. Seraphim disappeared. No one knew where they were. The entire communist regime, no, nobody knew where the remains of uh, St. Seraphim uh, were. But St. Seraphim wrote that when his remains would return to their rightful resting place, Russia would begin a new epoch in her history. You should know that in 1991, the remains of Saint Seraphim were found in the basement of the Museum of Atheism in Leningrad, which actually had been a great cathedral that had been turned by the communists into that museum. They were taken on a pilgrimage through Russia from one town to the other to the other with thousands of people participating. And they were returned to Serov one week before the coup. Yes. It's good because I need them. Movement conservatives have been really concerned in the last few elections where it appears that some of the gains we have made in the Republican Party under President Reagan, his two terms, and of course we know that George Bush in 1988 ran as the heir apparent to President Reagan, and you were his integral part of that movement. And yet, the past two presidential elections. 
Well, uh, first of all, the problem uh, was that we, as a movement, failed to unite behind a candidate. There are more conservatives than anybody else in the Republican context, and particularly since uh, uh, we worked very hard to form a coalition between the traditional Catholics and uh, evangelicals and fundamentalists for the purpose of public policy, not for the purpose of religion, but for the purpose of public policy. Um, I just uh, digression, but uh, Connie Marshner and, and Bob McAdam and I were in South Dakota and uh, doing a, a training conference. And I said there that if they wanted to win in South Dakota, that they should form a, an alliance between the Catholics in the cities and the uh, evangelicals in the rural areas. And a minister got up and says, Brother Paul says, you've changed my life. I don't hear that very often, so I was real interested. I said, really? He said, yes. He says, you know, you talked about that coalition with the Catholics and so on. I said, yes. He says, well, I got to change my life. I said, how so? He says, well, you can't preach against them on Sunday and work with them on Monday, he said. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> um, but um, there, there are more of us, if you will, than, than there are of anybody else. The problem is that in a primary, you can win a state, you know, with 23% of the vote. And if we don't unite behind a single candidate, then people go six ways from Sunday. And that is exactly what happened in both 1988. We had the chance to uh, come up with somebody to replace Reagan, and again in uh, 1996, uh, when there were conservatives in the Forbes campaign, and there were conservatives supporting Dornan, and there were conservatives supporting Keyes, and there were lots of conservatives supporting Buchanan, and there were conservatives uh, even supporting Lamar Alexander, and so on. And as a result, uh, Dole was able to drive the establishment uh, Republican vote to the point where he eliminated most of the, the, uh, the other candidates. Uh, it's uh, one of the sadnesses of, uh, of my experience that uh, I was unable to get uh, people to unite uh, behind uh, a particular candidate, and that uh, effort was made. The answer is uh, simply this. If the Republicans abandon the defense of the unborn, and if they refuse to make this an issue in this Congress, then I don't see that we have any alternative but to look elsewhere. If, uh, the model I have, by the way, for a new party is not the traditional model, because uh, in this century, we have had four major third-party efforts, the Bull Moose Progressives in uh, 1912, the La Follette Progressives in 1924, 
the George Wallace Independent American Movement in 1968 and Ross Perot in 1992, and they all lasted exactly one election. They, they were a protest movement which revolved around a particular personality, and when that personality didn't endure, the movement didn't endure. And if you look at what Ross Perot got this time, last time he got 19% of the vote, this time he got 8%. He's lucky to get that, and he only got that because he was speaking more clearly on the corruption uh, in the Democratic Party than was Bob Dole. Um, my model for a new party is to elect people at the local level first. You do not have all of the restrictions that you have uh, getting a presidential candidate. And so I think we can elect lots of people at the, at the local level and then go to the congressional level and then go to the presidential level. And it's always been tried in reverse and it doesn't work. So I'm trying to push my model now on lots of people who are thinking about this and I'm not sure that I will prevail because conservatives are kind of monarchists at heart and they love to have this you know, great central kingly figure who's going to come and rescue everybody except that uh, it doesn't really work that way in, in reality. All right, one last question. Yes, ma'am. Well, um, un unfortunately, uh, uh, my activity there has uh, come to an end after seven years, and uh, I uh, in, in some ways regret that, but uh, I have other things that I have to uh, devote my time to. Uh, basically, we taught thousands of people, last time I checked it was something like 16,000, uh, how to participate in the political process and how to win uh, elections and how to try to formulate a morally based state in the post-communist era. The people that we trained in Romania were successful last Sunday. Uh, that, that's one of the last things that, uh, that we did. And I don't know whether you saw the coverage, but the new president of Romania speaking to the throng in University Square, thousands of people, it turned out, asked them to pray with him, and these thousands of people knelt down and said the Our Father there right in University Square in Romania. Uh, it, it is truly uh, quite different than two months after Mr. Ceausescu bit the dust and we arrived there and uh, people were still afraid to, to even assemble, practically. So we've done a lot of work, uh, work there. Uh, but that was the central mission of what we were trying to do. Um, there are other people that, uh, that are picking this up, and it, uh, it's possible that uh, students can uh, get involved. If you're interested and you want to drop me a note, I'll try to refer you to somebody that, uh, that might be able to uh, make use of your talents. Anyway, I sort of feel like um, the uh, bachelor, you know, who was about 58 years old, never been married, and, and finally a widow persuaded him to get married, and they left the ceremony and uh, got in the car and were driving off.
and uh, his new wife said, Henry, you haven't said a word. And he says, I think I've said too much already. So I th <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> We do have a reception planned over in the crypt of the chapel.